Hello and welcome to Partially Redacted, the podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by privacy and data protection writer Robert Bateman. And we'll be talking about how the privacy landscape is changing, the impact of recent privacy enforcements, and transatlantic data transfers. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. Good to be here. Awesome. Yes, thanks for being here. We have, I think, a lot to discuss on a pretty tricky topic, but before we dive in, let's start with the basics. Who are you? you know, what's your background, work history? How did you end up where you are today? Sure. So I am a writer focusing on data protection, privacy, some security, AI, uh, other related topics. And well, I started to become interested in this field whilst I was working at a university. And my job was to kind of uh, represent students that were in trouble against the university. Uh, they'd been accused of cheating or they wanted to complain or they'd been kicked out and so on. And uh, I started to do a law degree for free as I was working there and really became fascinated by the topic of data protection and privacy. The I had to do a research project and at the time the Data Protection Act, which kind of um, sits alongside the GDPR in the UK, was being debated uh, in Parliament. And there was this, uh, well, in the UK law, there's this thing called the immigration exemption, which basically lets the government off the hook for various uh, data protection rights when it comes to maintaining effective immigration control. And so I did my project about that, it's a very bad, ugly piece of law. And uh, actually just last week or the week before, it uh, was overturned again in the courts here in the UK. So um, that, that was good news for me. And I started writing on the side of my main job about uh, the GDPR, which was quite new at the time. And the companies I was writing for just wanted so much content on every aspect of the law and I ended up getting to know it very very well so um, following that I quit my sort of full-time job and started writing full-time created a, a bit of a niche uh, in this field and became better known started writing some more kind of journalistic content for an American news site uh, then I took on a full-time job, which allowed me to do even more of this stuff and uh, also running events about the, the subject. And I interviewed some very well-known people in the field in that job a couple of times. Uh, Max Schrems, for example, who we might discuss later, who, who many listeners may have heard of. Uh, Johnny Ryan, who's a well-known uh, privacy campaigner here in Europe. Uh, I'd say over a hundred uh, privacy and data protection professionals, uh, you know, sitting on panels, doing interviews and writing a lot of articles. I counted my articles on the topic of privacy and data protection the other day, and I've racked up about 1500 over the years. So I'm back freelancing now, writing for privacy focused companies. And there are a lot of them because this is such a burgeoning and uh, fast developing 
field, as you'll know, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a that's a really impressive uh, 1,500 articles in the field. And uh, I like the, that you said that you, you focused on uh, privacy, security, and AI. So all the easy, you know, non-controversial topics are, are right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of my AI-related takes are more cynical than uh, others. Uh, I probably won't be hired by any uh, AI directly focused AI companies anytime soon. But there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, you know, a lot of applications of AI in security in particular and privacy as well that are uh, less, uh, that I'm less cynical about, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I definitely want to eventually get into some of your your thoughts around AI. Of course, it's, it's a huge topic in everywhere right now. But before we get there, maybe we can we can start with just getting your thoughts on how you know privacy regulations have evolved over the years that you've been involved in the space and what impact has that had for businesses so the gdpr was a really big deal that everyone made a lot of fanfare about at the time when it took effect in 2018 but it wasn't i mean it was different from what preceded it but I don't think people appreciate how similar the previous law was, the Data Protection Directive in, in the EU. Uh, there were some changes for the GDPR, but a lot of the core principles were the same. And businesses in Europe have been doing this stuff for a long time. The most interesting developments, certainly this year, have been in the US. Uh, where there is a lot going on. You've got five new privacy laws taking effect this year. Uh, the FTC is getting very busy on, regu on regulation and enforcement. And you've got California's got its new agency for uh, regulating privacy, the California Privacy Protection Agency. And... Around the world as well, things are developing. But because the US lacks, I think it stems really from the lack of a recognition of privacy directly or perhaps comprehensively in the Constitution, um, that the US doesn't have the same framework as, as many other countries. So it's kind of catching up a bit now with some very interesting kind of conflicting and piecemeal uh, pieces of legislation. And the, the, I think that the consumer or individual awareness of privacy has grown. Data goes both ways, I find, when trying to figure out whether people care more or less about their privacy. Um, I think that it's a difficult question, but obviously I think COVID had a big impact as well because whereas we were living most of our lives online before, we were suddenly living almost all of our lives online at that point. And because of the business model of many of the most dominant country, uh, companies online, that meant that a lot of data was being scooped up. So the legislation is developing uh, worldwide. 
and in the in Europe as well, and particularly in the US. And I think that business practices are changing, not necessarily in tandem with the regulation that's that's coming up though. Mm-hmm. So I want to dig in a little bit to something you talked a little bit about there about the sort of differences when it comes to like personal privacy in the US versus maybe other parts of the world. So how do you how do the cultural differences between say the US and EU impact their approach to privacy and and what sort of you, you touched on this a little bit but what impact has that had essentially to the regulations around privacy? So the differences in the US and the European approaches to privacy have caused one of the biggest headaches in data protection compliance, as it were, um, to do with international data transfers, which I guess we'll, we'll discuss in a bit more detail later. I think essentially um, the US approaches privacy from a sort of con- consumer protection um, angle. The FTC uses its consumer protection powers to enforce on, on, on privacy occasionally. We've seen that recently in action against um, GoodRx, the, uh, the drug right. prescription drug app. And the, the EU approaches it from a more human rights angle. The UK is somewhere between the two, I think, but it still has the European uh, legislative framework and also it has a strong tradition of, of privacy historically. It's, it's kind of going the other way a bit now. But I think that that difference in approaches uh, manifests in a difficulty in doing business between Europe and the US. The laws in the US tend to have um, carve-outs for smaller businesses, which the GDPR basically doesn't there are some there is flexibility but it doesn't really exempt anyone uh, entirely the us is also driven by litigation um, because the authorities well, it lacks the same uh, strength of public authority enforcement in that we have in in europe so Businesses are more more worried, I think, about class action lawsuits than about regulators. FTC is pretty powerful, though, but I think that that's given it a slightly different emphasis in the in the US. And the US has very powerful intelligence services, and they have a lot of power, both on paper, with US laws that allow for access to people's data. And in practice, where the intelligence services will sometimes, where they lack official power, they will find a way around that by purchasing data on the open market, for example. The same stuff happens in Europe, but on the whole, I think there is more restraint among intelligence services. Again, the UK is a bit of an exception here, uh, where GCHQ, the, the, the main intelligence service, is, is pretty 
uh, ubiquitous in, in uh, and, and powerful. But the the U.S. approach to intelligence gathering, I think, partly because of the position of the U.S. in in the world and its foreign policy, um, I think that has a big bearing as well, and, and and represents a bit of a difference between the U.S. and and Europe in this regard. Do you think that part of the reason some companies like like Meta, for example, have had trouble in Europe or consistently had ch- challenges around um, you know GDPR in 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 Europe has to do with some of these cultural differences, or do you think there's something else that's that's going on there? So on the face of it, um, so I should probably give a bit of background into why into into the issue here. So so Meta or Facebook as it was has been taken to court a couple of times by Max Schrems, who I mentioned earlier, for transferring uh, personal data from the EU to the US um, without appropriate safeguards under the law. Now, there used to be something called Privacy Shield. I don't, you know, forgive me, listeners, if you if you know all this, but I'll, I'll give a bit of background, which allowed uh, companies to, um, the, the, it was one of the ways that companies could legally do that, you know, transfer data from Europe to, to the US. And the, the case against Meta took aim at this privacy shield framework and uh, the, the, the court found that it wasn't capable of protecting Europeans' personal data from the US intelligence services. So the issue here is that the US law allows a lot of uh, what is considered in Europe to be quite intrusive uh, surveillance practices by by US intelligence services. And the GDPR says that you can't really allow personal data to be accessed by bodies like the NSA. And there's really no way to prevent that in theory uh, if you're a company like Meta, who has its European arm and its US arm and does a lot of business in Europe and eats up a lot of personal data. So I think that the cultural aspects play into that because firstly, the intelligence services in the US are very powerful and they say, and perhaps, you know, justifiably that they need this power to keep Americans safe. They need to have pretty much free access to personal data. Of course, there are checks and balances in the US. You know, it's it's not quite as bad as some people would like to imply, but there are weaknesses in the law from a European perspective. And Meta gets a lot of requests for access from the intelligence services and grants a lot of requests uh, for access, you know, hundreds of thousands a year, I think, um, both of uh, Americans and, and non-Americans. So, yes, I think the culturally, I've always wondered if, you know, it, it suits the US government to have companies that collect so much data because they're, they're kind of, you know, you can look at it as a bit of a proxy. You have the Stasi in East Germany hiding microphones in people's watering cans or, or, or whatever. We don't have to 
worry about the government really doing that anymore because they have access to it via these other companies that are mm -hmm. swallowing it up and storing it for them. Um, and I don't think Meta is doing that nefariously uh, in that sense, but it, the, we have a culture in the US where it is permitted because there aren't strong privacy laws that would stop Meta from doing that and perhaps allowed because it serves to provide the intelligence community with a, a lot of data. So that's the cultural aspect. And I think that people probably justifiably accuse the, the EU of hypocrisy here because European countries also have intelligence services. Um, but the, the, the law is just constructed in such a way that that, that is a problem uh, legally in, in compliance terms in, in particular. Right. Yeah. You, I mean, you don't have to hide cameras and mics in people's uh, houses if they're readily giving up that information essentially to a, a third party application that they're using for, you know, entertainment purposes, essentially. And if that person or that company allows the government agency access to it, then mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's essentially, like you said, a proxy to the data that they need. Is that the is that the key concern around this this uh, the regulations around transatlantic data transfers? Is that is the essentially the government interference with the data? Yeah, basically. So the the idea is that in in Europe there are two relevant fundamental rights here. It's not really a constitution, but it's, it's it basically. I mean, it's called the Charter of Fundamental Rights in the EU, and one of those rights is the right to privacy. And another is the right to data protection. And if you're going to operate in Europe, uh, you, I mean, those, those rights are kind of inalienable. You know, they're, they're not absolute, but the, the idea is that the GDPR should protect people and their, their fundamental rights, regardless of where the, the company that collects their data is operating. So in the US, the, the main problem is to do with the, the right to redress or the, the right to appeal. So intelligence services can basically surveil people outside the US, and there's not very much that non-Americans can do about it. There's not a great deal that Americans can do about it either, but the, 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 the relevant situation is for non-Americans. So the the... The Europeans and the Americans are trying to solve this with a, a new version of the Privacy Shields um, framework that I mentioned earlier. But the, the, the right to redress is a big problem. That's another thing under the Charter, by the way. If you, if you are accused of a crime or if you have your fundamental rights interfered with, you should have the right to challenge that. And that right doesn't exist in the US as it would need to, to satisfy European standards. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It, when companies run into problems with something like, you know, the, uh, the uh, transatlantic data transfers or some other type of violation of, of GDPR, how, how enforceable are those fines? Do companies actually end up paying them? It's really hard to say, and I have looked for this because it's a very interesting question because the, the reason it comes up is, well, the reason it came up for me recently was Clearview AI. 
who you've probably heard of. He's a New York-based uh, company that basically has this big database of uh, people's facial images and a big biometric database that identifies them and it sells access to its database to the police. And this is not really acceptable under the, the GDPR. So I think four or five regulators have fined Clearview. 20 million euros for most of them. I think seven and a half here in the UK. Uh, pounds, that is. But Clearview keeps saying, well, we... We don't operate in Europe, so you know it's nothing to do with us. Why, why are you even talking to us? Effectively, they do go through the motions, and they are appealing, I think, and they have operated in Europe. But the question becomes, well, what what are these regulators going to do about it if they're not interested in, you know, if it's a company like Google doesn't want to lose its European market, it would much rather pay uh, a fine than be ejected from Europe altogether. If it's a company that claims it doesn't operate in Europe at all, then then who cares? Um, they, they can just not pay. So that is an issue. I don't know if it's ever going to be solved, really, for international companies. For regular European companies, yeah, I think they, they, they normally pay. I, there was uh, the Irish Data Protection Authority reports on this, and the latest report, they collected 17 to 20 million euros, something like that. They said that's actually been collected and gone to their treasury. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's, it, the, I think the problem lies where it's a, a, a non-EU company that can just say, well, you know, we're not paying. Um, I don't think it's come up yet that a company has actually been kind of blocked uh, from Europe. There was this open AI thing, but that, that's been slightly misreported, uh, I think. Um, uh, but the I would imagine that the, the fines collected are less than the cost of enforcement, I think. Most, mm. most I mean, the, the biggest fine in this area is still the FTC, um, who fined Facebook five billion over Cambridge Analytica a few years ago. We've had nothing approaching that in the in the EU. Uh, I think the largest is against Amazon for 790 million euros, I think. And I mean, Amazon are going to be appealing that for a long time. So we'll, we'll see what actually they end up paying. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just had a few quick reminders. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button so you can always get the latest episode and help others discover the show by leaving a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Last thing before I get you back to the interview, if you are interested in the topics discussed in this podcast, then you should definitely, definitely join the partially redacted community at skyflow.com community. There you can meet other interesting and like-minded individuals like yourself, share your expertise, or just passively engage, totally up to you. All right, now back to the show. Right. And then for companies that, you know, have the best intentions in mind, like how do organizations go about ensuring like compliance with privacy laws when actually transferring data between, say, the US and EU? Yeah, I mean, that is the hardest area, the transfers. Um, 
you can you can comply with everything. <laughs> Some people say it's impossible. I don't really agree with that. I think it's impossible for some business models. Um, but the transfers are really the sticking point at the moment because if you if if you want to be able to see the data in the US, then that means the NSA or whoever can also see it if they ask for it. And this is a difficulty. If you're transferring uh, personal data that's encrypted, for example, and the US company can't decrypt it, then that's okay because the you know encrypted data without an encryption key, there's a low enough risk there. But it, it is really it's a really tricky point. And this is one of the reasons I'm quite glad I don't have to actually advise on this stuff. Uh, I just get to write about it in the abstracts because it's. I don't think people quite realise how how hard it is to be totally incompliant with that part of the law at the moment. There is a new possible solution coming down the track in in a few months uh, with this new agreement. When it comes to data transfers, though, I mean the so there there are a few things you can do in theory. It depends what you want to do with the data, really. Like I say, encryption, whereby you don't have the key as the importing party based outside of Europe, that's an option. That doesn't work if you want to actually do anything with the data, of course. But if you can hand the data, if you can hand the key over to a, to a third party based in Europe, then that, that's possibly an option for data transfers. Location of the servers matters up to a point. If you want to locate your infrastructure in mainland Europe, that that's helpful to some degree. But because of the way US law operates, the intelligence services don't actually care where the data physically is. They just care about whether or not you can access it as a US company. Um, so locating your, your data center in Europe is one piece of the puzzle, I think. Um, it gets very complicated and, and, and technical in the nitty gritty about whether, where, you know, what constitutes a, a transfer and what doesn't. But you can think about any measures you can take, technical measures, to ensure that you can't see the data and the NSA can't access it. I would love to be able to say that, you know, just think about the risk that the NSA will want the data you have. Um, think about the sensitivity of the data and all those factors. Unfortunately, the EU's, well, unfortunately for American companies, the, the EU's regulators say that is not to be taken into account. If there's any risk or if the NSA is kind of legally capable of accessing personal data, then that that's a problem, even if mm -hmm. the chances are very, very low. This is why Google Analytics is having issues. Google says, we've never been asked for data from analytics. The, the intelligence services don't really want that. And I can't imagine they do. I mean, they can just ask for Gmail <laughs> data or whatever. Um, but still, this... Part of the GDPR 
doesn't refer to risk. It speaks in absolute terms about uh, data transfers. You either either the either the foreign intelligence services can access data or they can't. And if they can, then that's a problem. So it's very disheartening actually to to discuss compliance in terms of transfers because that's the really difficult bits right now. Uh, in terms of the other stuff, I mean, that's all great. It, it all ties in quite nicely with um, customer trust and, you know, building a sustainable business model that doesn't depend on doing illegal stuff. You know, you can, the principles of data protection under the GDPR are all very admirable things. Don't collect data you don't need, don't store it longer than you have to, apply reasonable security measures, that stuff's all very much doable. The transfers part is the, is the real sticking point at the moment. Could be solved soon though. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, what you described there about even a company that has good intentions, it sounds like it, it's very difficult to to get right, or it may be even impossible, or you know, it's not very clear how you, how you would do this, even if you wanted to. So, you you kind of alluded to this, but how, how do we basically for EU US data transfers? Like, how do we make progress in this area? What what is what effort is going into trying to fix or address this problem? I think fundamentally there will have to be, if it's ever going to be permanently solved, there will have to be a reappraisal of fundamental constitutional, even, law, either in Europe or in the US. Um, because those two regimes are just not compatible. Um, the Either the US needs to give more rights to people who are subject to surveillance, or Europe needs to give fewer rights to those people, because there are two competing regimes there. Now, to get away from the philosophizing, in a couple of months, this new agreement between the US and the EU uh, should pass. It's called the US, the EU-US Data Privacy Framework. And it's designed to, it's like a self-certification scheme. So US companies can sign up and they promise to implement European style protections over the data that they have. The um, US intelligence services promise to not to spy too hard. And also the US is setting up what it calls a data protection review court. Um, we'll see if the European courts agree that it's a court, um, but that is an attempt to solve the right to redress issue that's plagued these agreements. This will be the third attempt. The other two have brought, been brought down by Max Schrems. Now, he is going to challenge this one. Uh, he's told me that personally, and he's told many, you know, he's made no secret of it. Um, so we'll see if he succeeds. I think that... It's the European Court of Justice that, that looks at these previous agreements. I think they are liable to make the same decision again, which will mean that this third agreement fails too. But that probably won't be for another few years. So 
there might be a bit of respite. I should say as well, I mean, you're asking me about pure sort of legal compliance questions. There are billions of technically unlawful data transfers going on every day. I mean, there's one happening right now as we record this, I, I imagine, um, because that's just how, how it works. And, we, you know, life and the economy keeps, keeps running. Um, so there is a sense in which all this stuff is a bit abstract anyway, but it's, it's still not really sustainable to have the law broken so many billions of times a day uh, by so many thousands of companies. I mean, it's, 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 it says something about the law and it, 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 um, it's not a sustainable situation. So hopefully we'll get a bit of respite in a few months. I mean, I say hopefully, I'm agnostic on whether the agreement is any good, but um, it will mean that it is possible to be compliant at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know, you you called out that there's basically billions of these um, sort of infractions going on on time, including one right now as we, as we record this. So if we take something like like a company like Meta, whose business model depends on user collection, if if someone was actually building Meta from scratch today, knowing what we know about GDPR. Europe's stance on data transfers. Could someone build Meta from scratch today such that it is in compliance and or is a business like that something that just can't exist under European privacy laws? So I really like this question. I'll I'll get transfers out of the way first, because there might be an answer there. I mean, if Meta were to restructure itself in such a way that its European entity was completely independent from its US entity. Um, it might be possible, and also it housed, it, it segregated all its European data in Europe and all its American data in the US. That I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen now. I mean, the data governance within Metro apparently is, is a bit of a nightmare. So they, you know, transferring personal data is a bit of a euphemism, really, because all the data is just sloshing around. You know, it's uh, it's it's a, it's a transfer is is kind of a a legal term rather than a technical one. But it's possible that with enough corporate restructuring, they might be able to, to, to solve the transfers problem. If we put that to one side and focus on the other stuff, the biggest problem for Meta at the moment, other than the transfers, is their lawful basis for uh, targeted advertising. Now they, on the day of the GDPR it took effect, they they changed the way that they justified um, ad targeting because obviously targeting ads requires a lot of personal data. They previously said they, they did it with people's consent. Then the GDPR strengthened the definition of consent a bit and they thought, is this going to work? Is this still going to be legal? So in 2018, they started saying that they were uh, providing targeted ads under a contract with their users as, as though the, the users kind of signed up for that and they were just obliging. Um, now, this is problematic. And over the last five years, they've been battling with uh, the EU's regulators to continue doing this. And they were told not to recently. So they, they, they can no longer say that 
targeting ads as part of their terms. I suppose the, the, the reason I mention this is because Meta could get consent for this stuff and then it would pretty much be fine. Uh, consent is, is not the only way to do things under the GDPR, but it is considered appropriate for stuff like targeting ads. Now, whether Meta could survive as a business if it had to do that is kind of another question because lots of people would say no, and then they would say that their ads would be less effective. But in, in legal terms, I mean, it's possible to have a social media platform with ad targeting uh, in, in the EU under the GDPR. You could do a lot of what Meta does. You just have to ask people. <laughs> and uh, I think that consent would probably solve a lot of their problems. Right, so the a lot of it is is a matter potentially a matter of um, being transparent about what you're doing, and it could potentially impact like your overall revenue rather than opting someone in automatically versus mm-hmm. asking for consent. But mm-hmm. you could do it in a in a, essentially a legal way. Yeah, I mean, people like to downplay consent under the GDPR because there's a bit of a myth that you need consent for everything, which is not true. It's uh, it's just one option out of six um, under the GDPR. So it's kind of less important than under some other privacy laws uh, or data protection laws. But for stuff that's considered a nice to have, like the ability to profile people and sell their profiles to advertisers and, and that kind of thing, consent is, is probably the best legal basis for, for a company like Meta to do stuff like that. Um, and that that is a big legal problem for them at the moment. Mm-hmm. So before we uh, wrap up, I I did want, and and we probably can't do this justice. We probably need to do a whole episode on it. But I do want to get your thoughts on on uh, essentially the impact of generative AI and what that might have on on, on privacy. Uh, obviously, this is a huge topic now with the explosion of ChatGPT, and there's you know a huge investment from startups now uh, developing all kinds of technology around the uh, generative AI landscape. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this in terms of potential impact from a privacy perspective. So this is going to be another data transfers type issue, I think, in the coming years. Um, Because so so in in Europe, we, we separate, I mean, colloquially, we can say privacy for, for everything, but privacy and data protection are technically two different concepts. And uh, OpenAI, if we take them as the example, um, and ChatGPT, uh, just the most obvious example of an AI application that everyone's talking about. Privacy-wise, it's not so bad. You know, it's all, if we accept that it's all publicly available data, um, if we grant them that, then there are still privacy issues but it's mostly data that people have put on the internet and it's not great for it to be used in other contexts, but it's not confidential information on the whole. So the the bigger problem is is data protection for for a company like OpenAI because that data they're using was not provided for the purpose of training uh, an AI system. And people have rights over their personal data. So any personal data of yours or mine 
in that training set. Um, we don't have a model of data ownership here in, in Europe, but you should have some degree of control over that data and you should be able to find out what they've got. You should be able to ask them to delete it. You should be able to uh, object to their use of it in certain ways. I think all of that is pretty much impossible with a, a large language model. And this has been an issue for OpenAI in Italy where the Italian regulator has said you don't have a legal basis or you don't appear to have a legal basis for processing this data. Now that's just the training set. I mean, OpenAI didn't collect that themselves. It comes from Common Crawl, which is a nonprofit that, that just kind of scrapes data from the internet and makes it available to, to companies. Um, but they're still responsible for how they use it. And I don't know if it can be used in a way that complies with the GDPR. Um, so I think that is a fundamental problem for large language models in particular, image generation AI as well, that there's inevitably going to be, if you've got that much data, then there's inevitably going to be personal data in there and you need a legal basis for using it. You also need to tell people what you're doing with their data or have a good reason not to. And it's possible that you could make a, an AI system that complies with all those principles, but you better think about it beforehand. And I'm not confident that a lot of these AI companies have done that. Um, so that's just one aspect. There's also the actual product itself. Uh, so if we take chat, chat GPT as the example again, it comes out with a lot of wrong stuff about people. Now, this is a good example of why it's more of a data protection issue than a privacy issue, because under data protection law, you've got a right to accuracy. So personal data has to be accurate. And if you maintain or process inaccurate data about someone, then you have to let them correct it. And you have to, well, just generally make sure that you're not putting out falsehoods about people. So that's another issue. And that was mentioned by the Italian regulator too. Uh, so there are all sorts of compliance issues and Europe's gonna find itself with real difficulty, I think, because most of this stuff is governed by the GDPR, not everything. And the GDPR isn't, a, it's got stuff about automated decision-making in it, which is, which can be done by AI, but it's not an AI-specific law. And they are working on one, but the EU is rather slow. Um, so it might be a while before that passes. I think that data protection authorities are going to have real difficulty enforcing the GDPR against these companies. People might not want them to because, I mean, it would just mean you can't operate. There are, there are unanswered questions as well about whether an algorithm is personal data, if it can produce personal data about you. That's a really tricky question, I think. Should you have access to model weights and biases and all that kind of stuff? So it's going to be an interesting few years and uh, it's another area where regulation is slightly behind the real world, I think. 
Yeah, there's a lot of, I think, complex issues here. I mean, we just, we, we recently did a, a show on, on data deletion and data deletion is a hard problem without it being wrapped up in one of these large language models. I can't even imagine how complicated it would try, be to try to, you know, unwrap that black box to figure out, you know, where, what, what parts of the model or what parts of uh, the information needs to be uh, removed or retrained or something like that. And, you know, I think you raise a good point about the sort of uh, like tendency for, at least in, in the chat GPT world of it to hallucinate certain facts. You know, I've done like lots of people, I've uh, done the, the query of, uh, you know, who is Sean Falconer and it, you know, I would say 10 to 15% was, was accurate and the rest of it was mostly made up. Uh, apparently I'd founded some companies I'd never actually heard of uh, and had a few jobs that I, I didn't actually have in the past. So uh, yeah, I think that, that is uh there's a lot to think through and it's moving so fast clearly like the the legalities around it are not going to be able to move at the same speed as as the innovation that's happening in the industry right now yeah and i mean just one more thing on that the so the italian regulator said a lot of stuff about not wanting to hamper ai development or you know quash innovation in some way but if you applied all the rules to a company like openai I mean, they they just wouldn't be able to continue operating in Europe. It's it's um, getting that balance, I think, between allowing this kind of activity if they want to allow it, and making sure that the law isn't just totally disregarded, which is a risk in itself. I think if you have what's essentially a human rights law, and you just allow companies to ignore it, I mean, there there is a there's this kind of societal level risk there i think um so the the yeah the existing law does does cater for a lot of ai related stuff but i think it's either a blunt instrument in some areas or just doesn't have the right language or get gets the balance wrong and uh, it's 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 going to be very difficult to develop new rules in, in time i think particularly in the us i must say where where, where they're a long way off uh, regulating the, this kind of stuff yeah, I mean, clearly we want to make sure that companies are doing the right things to protect people's data, but we also don't want to restrict companies so much that essentially our you know consumers or people in the world can't take advantage of some of this innovation that's going on because there is real value there from uh, whether it's in the sort of generative AI of speeding up whatever it is that you do, maybe it's you know writing or you know coding or, or whatever whatever uh, you're you're using it for. So, uh, Robert, I want to thank you so much for being here. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think uh, I probably need to listen to this back uh, a couple of times <laughs> with the amount of, uh, of stuff that we, we covered. I think there's just so much complexity around uh, the ins and outs of particularly like the transatlantic data transfers and how do you, you know, think through that. It, it, it's it's a, a difficult thing for any company to navigate. So I appreciate you coming on here and explaining and sharing your expertise. That's my pleasure. I hope I haven't presented too gloomy uh, a picture of the compliance landscape. Um, the the transfer stuff is a problem unto itself, and uh, you know the getting getting privacy and data protection right is doable. Uh, if we put the kind of legal uh, rabbit holes to one side, applying those principles and respecting people's rights and being transparent, these are all really doable things. And I think companies that implement these 
these principles and, uh, and rules early in particular have a real advantage as the the world's attitude towards privacy changes you know getting it right now before the us introduces even more laws uh, on this is, is really important yeah i think that's well said i think that's a great place to leave it i think it's very important for all companies and this has come up multiple times on the, on this podcast of course talking to all these uh, you know privacy and security experts you need to you need to be thinking about this from day one. Um, it, it's not it's going to be a lot difficult, more difficult to deal with down the road if you built all these. I mean, look at the like like our discussion around Meta. It's something that's going to be really really hard to unravel once you've mm-hmm. built all these systems and you haven't thought even thought about this. Yeah, the world is changing a lot, and uh, the U.S. in particular is changing a lot, and it's really time to start uh, implementing those, those, those privacy focused principles and and controls as early as you can in in the production and and development process, I think. Awesome. Thanks again and, and cheers. Thanks so much, Sean. Good to talk to you.